This is Solid Foundation Ministries with Dr. Pierre Couvert, building solid foundations through sound Bible teaching. We're continuing our study on the New Testament church. I want to look at the government of the church from a biblical standpoint. In Christian circles, there are three major types of government for churches. Uh, First of all, there's the Episcopal form of government, which uh, you see that most clearly in the Catholic Church. You have a hierarchy where you have the Pope, and then you have the Cardinals, and then you have the and various levels of bishops, and then you come down to the, to the the parish priests all the way down like this, and you have a hierarchy. That's that's one type, and and the leader sitting at the top tells the churches what to do and what not to do. Then there's the Presbyterian type of of uh, of church government. The Presbyterian chi- type of church government usually has a uh, a denominational headquarters, but what Presbyterian means is led by a group of elders. So you have sometimes individual churches that are run under that type also. And then the third method is congregational. There's probably a fourth method that we see sometimes in Baptist churches, and that's pastor-led churches where the pastor just gets up there and dictates everything. And we know that's not right. But congregational is where the congregation makes the decisions. And Baptists generally follow the congregational form of government we'll see that that form fits the New Testament best, but we'll also see that the congregation's authority to make decisions is quite limited. There in Colossians chapter uh, 1, start reading in verse, uh, verse 12, it says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Uh, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us uh, into the kingdom of his dear dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who uh, is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head. This is the part I want us to see in this. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of uh, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The first thing we need to understand is who is the head of the church. And the head of, of a New Testament church is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. First of all, I want us to look at his right to be the head. And if we just take what we've just read through here, we see that God the Father is the source of the plan. The Father is the one to whom we owe thanks for the inheritance that we have in Christ. He changes us and makes us meet or fit for that inheritance. He gave us the divine nature, which we became partakers of. We don't become God, but we become partakers of his nature. He's the one that gave us all things that pertain to life and godliness and things. And he brought us into the kingdom of his dear son. So he did those things. So we owe him thanks for all of that. But Jesus is the basis of our redemption. Look in in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. 
says, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Now that passage right there uh, agrees with our, our text over here where, where it says, in whom, in verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood. His blood was shed to pay our sin debt. He is the propitiation for our sins. That means he is the sufficient sacrifice what he did is sufficient. God doesn't need anything else. It shows forth his righteousness. What does that mean? Well, it shows forth both God's righteousness in that he doesn't allow sin to go unpunished. It shows Christ's righteousness in that his righteousness was sufficient to pay the debt of every single one of us. And his righteousness is imputed or placed into our account so that we have in our, in our righteousness account the righteousness of Christ, because ours isn't good enough. And then it's through faith in his blood we receive forgiveness of sin. And I don't think we fully understand what that means. There is wisdom in, in uh, uh, Christ being the head of the church. In verses 15 through 17, it talks about, about some things that are done there. I'm not going to reread them. First of all, it says he is the image of the invisible God. Now, I'd like you to note something about that. It doesn't say he's the image of God. You see, we're created in the image of God, which means we are a picture. Now, we've soiled that picture with sin, but we are a picture of God. But he's not a picture of God. He's a picture of the invisible God. Why is that important? Because Jesus Christ is God in visible form. Jesus Christ is what God would look like if he was walking around here in the flesh. So he's the, he's the image or what we see if we could see God. So he's not an image in the same sense that we are. We're kind of a reflection. But he's not a reflection. He is that image that we would see if we saw God. It says he is the firstborn of every creature. Now, it should be pretty obvious that there were other people born before Jesus Christ. So that can't possibly mean that he is the first one born. So we need to take a look and see what it means here. The word first, firstborn here means the foremost or the most important of every creature. We need to remember that while Jesus himself, Jesus Christ, the Lord, is not a created being, his body is. And there is no body that has ever been created and born that is more important than his. Because it's in that birth that we have the, the, the beginning of our redemption. The firstborn of every creature doesn't mean he was born before anyone else. It means that he was the most important of any that were ever born. And he made everything so he knows what is best for everything. Everything in heaven and earth were created by and for the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not here for yourself. You were created and you're here for the benefit of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might receive glory through our lives. He is before all things. That means he saw everything come into existence. So he knows everything about it. Also, it says everything, it says by him all things consist. That means they hold together. I remember back in, in a science class, and I think it was chemistry where, I, where we discussed this, is they, they were discussing what holds the atom together, and nobody knew. But I do, because God wrote it down in, in the best science book ever written, the Bible, and Jesus Christ holds it all together. If he were to ever turn loose, 
They think the Big Bang was something? Boy, would there be a bang if he ever turned loose. Because of all of this, God's wisdom in placing Christ at the head of the church is seen. Because he knows everything. He knows what's good, what's bad. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow. He knows what's best for everyone and everything. So it's wise that we allow him to be the head of the church and not try and take over the reins of the church ourselves. He's the only one qualified in verse 18. It says, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Here again, firstborn means that he is the most prominent. Was he the first one to ever raise from the dead? I think there was a guy named Lazarus. This is one example. So no, but he's the most important. Why is he the most important? Well, his resurrection is the most important resurrection because it proves his right to lead. It proves that he has the power, the right given to him by God to be our leader. To be the one that we follow. You know, there's a major difference between Christianity and any other religion out there. All of the rest of them, their founders are dead and buried. Our founder is alive. That, that is a major difference. He is to have the preeminence in all things. Now, preeminence means he is superior to all others. He's above all others. We can't even come close to what he is. He outranks all of us. What he says in his word takes precedent over everything. What this book says takes precedence over everything. It carries authority over everything. Now, what do I mean by everything? It takes precedent over pastors. Pastor's job is merely to be the executor of the word, to make sure the word is followed correctly. That's the power that the, that the pastor has. When people start deviating from the word of God, he has the power to call them back to it and to say, no, you're not going to do that. His word takes precedence over anything the pastor says. His precedence takes, takes any precedence over anything the congregation says. The congregation does not have the right to make new laws. The congregation serves in helping with some internal decisions. But all those decisions are to be made in accordance with the law book, the Bible. His word takes precedence over church constitutions. The word of God is the final authority, not the constitution. What Jesus Christ, as the head of the church, says in his word takes precedence over everything. He is the supreme leader of each and every New Testament church. And we need to keep that in mind. The next thing I want to look at is the autonomy of the New Testament church. And what that means is every single individual church is totally self-governed under the headship of Christ. There is no denominational headquarters. There is no fellowship, no convention, no anything over the New Testament church. It is totally self-contained as a body which belongs to Christ with him as the head. Go with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. It says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to, the, to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. This is talking about the elders of the church. Now let's look a little bit at the context. Go back to verse 17. 
And this is Paul. It says, and from Miletus he went, or he sent to Ephesus, and called the elders of the church. So this passage of scripture is talking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, a local New Testament church at Ephesus. He's talking to the elders of a local church. Look down in in verse twenty. Paul talking about his ministry to them. He says, How I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. We uh, see that he's talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, and he taught them everything they needed to know. He taught them publicly, like what I'm doing just right now. He taught them from house to house. Now, the bottom line of his whole ministry was repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. But it says there that he taught him a lot more than that. Paul was an apostle. And he was twice an apostle. First of all, he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, trained by Jesus Christ himself, a witness of the resurrection and a witness of the stoning of the first martyr. So he was an apostle, and by that he had a special position, but he also was a missionary sent out by the church at Antioch. So that gives us some idea the purpose of our missionaries. Missionaries don't go out and pastor churches, start churches and pastor them. If they continue to pastor once the church is able to take care of itself, then they should resign as missionary and become a pastor. Let the church support them, just like Bellingham Baptist Church supports its pastors. But their job as a missionary is to go out there, win people to Christ, teach them everything that, that's profitable to them, everything they need to know, teach them the Bible, bring them together, form a church, and then move on and do it again. Still keeping an oversight over those churches a little bit to make sure that, that everything was understood. The context here is he's talking to the New Testament church. And then in verse 88, remember, or 28 rather, remember, he's talking to, uh, to the elders of the church, and he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. Not to the whole flock of every, all the flocks everywhere, but to that one specific flock, that one specific church, the church at Ephesus. These elders had no uh, authority or responsibility outside of the church at Ephesus. And no other church was able or, or had any right to come in and tell them what to do. It's interesting also because in verse 17, he sent for uh, and called the elders. That's the word uh, that we get the word Presbyterian from. It doesn't mean a, a committee like, like it does in the Presbyterian ch- type of church government. What the word really means is older and wiser people. It has to do with maturity. And so the elders are those that are supposed to be more mature. But in verse 17, he tells them what their job is. Uh, it says in verse 17, no, verse eight, verse 28, I mean, it says, uh, hath made you overseers. That's the word episkopos, which is where we get our word bishop from. So elders and bishops are one and the same. The elders oversee as bishops. The church and the word bishop means an overseer. You can call me Pastor Coovert if you want. You can call me Elder Coovert and you would still be right. Or you can call me Bishop Coovert and you would be right. All three of those those names apply uh, to the position that that God has placed us in for right now. No one questions 
that when we see the qualifications for a bishop, that it's talking about the pastor. When we say, where do you find the qualification of the pastor? We go immediately to, to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we read the qualifications for a bishop because it's the same position. But to whom were they given oversight? To the flock where the Holy Ghost had placed them. There are two important thoughts in that. First of all, that's the one flock where they, where they have oversight. But the other thing that's important, it says, over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. There is one place that you can go in Scripture to contest what I've just said about the autonomy of the church. And it's Acts chapter 15. So let's go there. And when we look at it, what it really says, it fits quite well with what I've said so far. In, in verse 1, it says, And certain men came down from Judea, which came down from Judea, taught the brethren, and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension or disputation uh, with them, they, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other men would go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and the elders about the questions. What it sounds like you have here is the church at Antioch going to Jerusalem for authority on an issue, like it's over them. That's what it sounds like on the surface, but that's not at all what happened. Some people came down who said they were from the church at Jerusalem, and they taught that circumcision was necessary for salvation. So what they did is they sent a, a delegation to Jerusalem to clarify the matter. Not for authority, and you'll, uh, if, you, if you look in verse 4, it says, um, And when they were come to Jerusalem, they received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. So they went up there, and the church received them, and the apostles and the church elders received them, and they came in. First of all, they told the church at Jerusalem, which was basically a Jewish church, all that God was doing among the Gentiles. And then they told them the problem. Look in verse 5. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, so these are Christians that believed, uh, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And this is what we saw in verse, in verse 1 up there. They came and they said, Listen, some people have come down from your church and they're telling us these things. They're stirring up problems in our church. They're coming from your church, coming down to stir up problems, and they're stirring up problems in our church. And in verse 6, it says, And the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. So they studied the issue. They, they, they discussed it, got whatever evidence they needed. And then they concluded that those who had gone in the name of their church were wrong. So they sent them a letter. In verse 22, then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and the elders and the brethren send greeting unto the brethren that are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. And then it goes on and talks about some other things. What they did is they sent some letters, 
along with some other men to go out there and say, hey, these guys that came down there representing us were wrong. So what do we actually have here? Do we have a church under the authority of another church that's going up to get a matter set straight? Or do we have a church that finds there's a problem coming out of another church and goes over to tell the leaders in that church and get it straightened out in that church so that they'll quit bothering them in their church? This is akin to that to what Matthew 18 says about if you have a difference with a Christian brother. You first go to them and talk to them. So here we have a church that's having trouble with another church and it does the right thing. It sends a delegation to talk to the other church and say, listen, your people are coming down and stirring up trouble. And they discussed the issue. They came to the conclusion. And, and it came down to there were just a few things that they demanded that they, that they, uh, uh, that they do. But it wasn't the church at Antioch being under the authority of the church at Jerusalem or even under the authority of the apostles. You'll find that when the apostle Paul, if you study it out, when he left a church under the, in the hands of a pastor, that that man became the authority and Paul was no longer the authority in that church. So the church is to be autonomous, ruled totally from within itself. There is some safety in this principle. When you have uh, the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church or the Methodist Church or anything that has a headquarters with a hierarchy, when the hierarchy goes bad, the whole denomination goes bad. So, so we have the autonomy because then when, a, when the government of that church goes bad, when the pastor goes bad and is able to influence the people, only that one church falls. But when you have the organization with hierarchy, when the top goes bad, it all goes bad. Then the last thing I want to look at is congregational rule of the church. We, we just have a very few examples of this type of thing in Acts, in Acts chapter 6 being the first one. Acts chapter 6 is where they chose the first deacon, but uh, this is where we're going to start out. It says, In those days, when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the, Grecian, murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom ye may appoint over this business. And we shall give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Here we have a case of, of a church choosing out certain men for a specific purpose. In this passage, we see the choosing of the first deacons. The word translated deacon, or serve rather, in verse 2, where it says serve tables, that's the verb for deacon. It means that uh, they were to choose out some people to serve for a certain purpose. They, they were choosing servants, not leaders. And that's important to understand that difference. These men were chosen by the church, but under whose human authority? the spiritual leaders in the church. The church didn't just go out and do it, say, hey, listen, we're going to do this. The pastor said, okay, church, you pick these people out. You choose some good men that we can trust to do this job so that us, uh, we that are supposed to be ministering in prayer and the, and the word will have time to do that. Their purpose was to take the burden off of the leaders so they could do their jobs. And and look at the, look at the, the result of this in verse 7. And the word of God increased... And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. See, when they took the burden off of the pastors 
and allowed them to uh, do their job, the result was church growth. Now that's one example of the congregation making a choice within the church. There's another one in Acts chapter 1, a very familiar one. Acts chapter 1 and uh, verse... Uh, well, it's, verse, it's verses 15 through 26. I'm not going to read all of it. But, it's, but basically it says, In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, and the number of the names together were about 120. So that's the size of the church at the time. And then it goes on to talk about how there was supposed to be a replacement for Judas, as you read on through here. And I'm not going to read through it all. You can do that on your own. I think that the way they did it with the, with the church casting their lots, which means their ballots, if you will, and choosing the man, I think that was perfectly acceptable. I don't have any problems with that. But what were they doing? Were they choosing a leader? No. In verse 22, it says, beginning from the, this is talking about the qualifications of the man, beginning from the baptism of John uh, unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. They weren't choosing a leader. They were choosing somebody who had the knowledge to be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the church had that authority. Again, it was under the direction of the leaders, Peter being the number one spokesman there in, in uh, Acts chapter 1. And then we have one other case where we see the church acting as a governing body in a sense. And it's in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. It says, Moreover, if thy brother shall uh, trespass against thee, go and tell, it, tell him uh, his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall ne neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let, uh, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. This last one is in issues of church discipline. When we have a difference with another Christian, and it talks about them having the, for the other person having the fault in the example, but I think it works anytime there's a difference. What you do is first go one-on-one -on -one and try and resolve the problem. If that doesn't work, you get one or two more people to go with you so that, that somebody listens and hears both sides of the stories and confirms what's true and what isn't true. So everything is established. And if that doesn't work, you take it to the church. And the church is to resolve it. And if that doesn't work, you're left to the last resort where the church uh, disfellowships with him. And there's a lot more scriptures that I could go to on that, but it says treat him like a, like a heathen and man and a publican. And that's where you disfellowship with him. In church discipline, the congregation sits as a jury, not a judge in the matter. The congregation hears the evidence, takes the law, the Bible, and comes to a conclusion. It is wise... I think extremely wise on certain things to take it to the church and let them make decisions. For example, large financial expenditures would be an example of that. I think it's wise in, in getting the church's input on calling a new pastor because none of us are infallible. And if the people of the church really pray about issues and have the church and Christ in first priority in their lives as far as the issues are concerned then we're going to come to a much better conclusion. The Bible says that there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. But anything the church decides upon in any area 
should always, always, always follow biblical guidelines. Remember who the head of the church is. The real governor of the church is the Lord himself. He then under him has an under-shepherd, a pastor, which is placed in the church by the Holy Ghost, as we saw earlier. We need to remember that each church is autonomous. There's no other church has any authority over this church, no other organization, nothing anywhere. It's Jesus Christ down to the church. There's no higher earthly authority over the church, none whatsoever. Uh, the church makes certain decisions concerning servants within that particular church and should have input into uh, certain other areas like major matters that affect the church. I mean... When we make a major financial expenditure, it affects everybody in the church. They ought to have their say. But that's about the limit of congregational church government. The pastor is to oversee everything, including church business meetings, including those decisions that are made on these issues, and make sure that biblical principles are followed. That's his job. One thing that is very, very important for pastors, and some of them forget that. I try not to. And that is, pastors aren't infallible. Pastors are not the Lord over God's heritage. But he is the overseer, and he's to make sure everything is done right. He is the chief executive, as you will. So the chief executive doesn't have the right to make laws, but neither can the congregation. Our laws are given to us in the Word of God. The final authority is not the pastor, the denomination, the congregation, or the constitution. It is always Christ and what he says in his Word. You have been listening to Solid Foundation Ministries from Lenore, North Carolina. Dr. Kuvert has 35 years in the ministry as a former missionary and pastor. He is available for revivals and various conferences on missions, Bible, Baptist heritage, and the family. To find out more, go to our website, solidfoundationministries.com, or call 828 828- 244-6505. Remember, the Christian life is not about you. It's about God receiving the glory.